Hi friends, this is your friendly editor, Charlotte, just here to let you guys know if you're only listening to us on the podcast, you might have missed out on some of our most recent archaeology videos that we put out exclusively on our video platforms, YouTube and Rumble, mainly on our website. But if you'd like to go check those out, you can check out the links in the descriptions today, or you can sign up to our email list to get notified every time we put out something new, whether it's on the podcast or on our video channels. So that link will also be in the description. With that, enjoy today's lesson. Hello again and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It is your host Michael Lane and we are starting a whole new series here. It's a Bible study series and uh, what we're going to be doing is taking a look at the life of David. Uh, this series is called David's Guide to Leadership. And now we're not talking about the King David of the Bible, but the pre-King David. This study is going to be taken primarily from 1 Samuel. Um, sections in 1 Samuel before David becomes king, because we learn, uh, we can learn a tremendous amount of information about David's life and in its early time before he became a king, and what magnificent ways this guy is a leader, and how he can teach us things. You see, a leader, in this introduction as we get going here, a leader is one who conducts or commands um, leaders guide and, and show ways to people who are following. Some people are born with this aptitude. Some are given it as a spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. Some are trained throughout time to develop the skill. And there are others that, let's just face it, some are just born followers. Not everybody, in my opinion, not everybody is set out to be a leader. Though we often, I remember as a teacher, uh, when I taught school, and even after, when people would ask me for, um, even to this day, when people ask me to fill out op, uh, college applications for them, there's almost always something about what type of a leader is this. And on more than one occasion, I have had to write, honestly, this person is not that great of a leader, but this person is a tremendous follower and a great follower. You probably have a lot of uh, leaders at your university. How many followers do you have? I mean, the university, I always thought this is strange. If a university is just full of followers, who's, who are they leading? So um, some people just don't have those skills and are set to be followers. But anyway, in talking about leadership, and a lot of people, they try and train for it. There's series that we go through. I have gone through book series. I have gone through training seminars, et cetera, et cetera, on leadership. Actually, I find the Bible is a great training manual for developing and tuning skills in leadership. God has given us such books as the book of Nehemiah. Oh my gosh, this is a practically a handbook on how to be a good leader. We'll probably do that series sometime. I've taught that, that series many times on the leadership with Nehemiah. Um, he is tremendous on, on how to make a good leader a better leader. Um, besides that classic book on leadership, we can gain other leadership training from other books in the Bible. The book of Psalms has many, many um, leadership um, ideas and, and suggestions. Uh, the book of Proverbs is full of them, and there's others. And in this case, we're looking at 1 Samuel. Now, 
This, as I said, is going to be a Bible study series from sections in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, we're not doing a complete study from uh, the first chapter to the last chapter of 1 Samuel. We're looking at the life of David, but we're using just 1 Samuel as our primary text through this. In this series, I'll be using primarily the uh, English Standard Version because it's a word-for-word translation. But in this lesson, and well, this series, we're going to be examining the early life of David, and we're going to see David's rise from a very, very lowly shepherd and insignificant sibling uh, to become not only the commander-in-chief of the army of Israel, but a man who will become king and be in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. David's rise from obscurity to fame and how he handled it is an amazing feature of his character. I mean, this man had a heart for God, and it shows. For there are a few examples of people rising in the ranks as he did and reaching the fame that he had reached and not become conceited and full of pride. Now, David's character in his early life contains many examples, what we're going to learn here, of what makes a leader great. Uh, We read of him behaving and handling problems in excellent fashion, and also we will read of his faults. He was a normal man, just like us, uh, who saw great success and yet suffered from deep depression. His life can show those of us who are in leadership positions how to handle situations and inspire followers. So if you're ready, in this leadership position, uh, if you find yourself in a leadership position, or if you're hoping on being in one someday in your life, sometime in your life, you might find the strategies that David used in leading a group of people very helpful. You're also going to learn some things to avoid as being a leader, and also how to handle situations that leaders will commonly be forced to guide followers through. David experienced all these things, and we can glean from his life experiences. God's Word is a magnificent training manual for many things. It's my hope that his Word will guide you to become a better leader to those you lead and a great example to those who are all around you. So I hope you'll join us as we continue in this series on David's Guide to Leadership. Looking in the book of 1 Samuel and studying the events of David's life and seeing what leadership skills does he possess, and at times lack, that they can teach us on how to be good leaders. This is a Bible study. We're going to look at Scripture carefully. We're going to examine things, look for who, what, when, where, whys, and hows, and in passages, dealing with leadership and David's um, the, the methods that David uses. Because we're going to see that and learn through this series, he is a tremendous leader. And uh, so that's what this series is all about. And this is the first lesson. And I'm entitling this one, Getting the Job, Getting the Job. And so before we begin, I want to start this series with a word of prayer and um, just to get make sure that we're on the right page with, the, with God himself. It's the Holy Spirit that does the teaching, and we want him to do it. And so let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day you've given us, for the health and safety you've given us. I thank you for evidence for faith and the 
ministry impact it has on so many people in so many countries around the world. We thank you. And Lord, as we begin this new series dealing with the book of 1 Samuel, I ask that your Holy Spirit, Lord, do the teaching. Open up our hearts and our minds to see what flaws we might have. And Lord, also to teach us how we can be better leaders and better examples for you to the world around us. So guide us through this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, when I was teaching high school in Illinois, I was a sponsor of the school science club. Now, I'll tell you, it was a very small club. We only had about 15 members in the club. And we met after school on a Tuesday in my lab. Every Tuesday after school in my lab. My wife would make treats for us. But we were small in number. Even so, I wanted the club to be organized. So each year we elected a president, a vice president, and a treasurer. We would do a lot of fun activities. I have some just absolutely fond memories, <laughs> and humorous memories sometimes, of some of the activities our science club did, like take trips to Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. I can still remember going through Fat Man's Misery <laughs> with, with our students at Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. Uh, we went to local universities. Olivet Nazarene University was nearby. We went there. Um, and some other schools and um, met with professors and had activities and stuff. We went to the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. We, we had a lot of different activities that we did on uh, the weekends and stuff. But this was high school. And because it was high school, we had a lot of the same students. Because it was a club open to freshmen, sophomore, juniors, and seniors, all four years of high school. So we would have repeat students every year in the same club. Once they graduate, of course, they're gone. Well, on one new school year I want to tell you about, our former president, having graduated, um, we needed to elect a new set of leaders, in particular a new president and a new vice president. Now, the group nominated two students, both of whom had been in the club for a couple of years. One of these students, now I'm not going to use their real names. We're just going to refer to these two guys as Brian and Dave. We're just going to do that. So one of these students, I'm going to call Brian. Brian was an above-average student, and he wanted to be president of the club badly. I can't emphasize how badly he wanted it. He was also an extremely popular guy at school. So um, he was elected, and his best friend, who we'll call Dave, was also elected to be his vice president. So there is our leadership, um, this Dave and, and Brian. Um, now, here's what was strange. That year, I remember very distinctly, that year the club seemed to do very little. We did not take any trips to different places. We didn't go to Red Lobster and dissect shellfish or something. We, we didn't do hardly anything. Um, and so I found myself that year working a lot harder than I had ever on any other years to keep the club going. It seemed like... Dave and Brian, they often just went around the school bragging about their position. Um, so it was, it was a hard year. I would make suggestions to them. I met with them and tried to get some planning activities taking place, but they just never followed through. So if we did anything, it was more myself doing it. And it seemed like the only thing they really contributed and did they decided that it was time for us to make the Science Club t-shirts, which they designed. And theirs, um, Brian and Dave, they decided that they wanted their title, president and vice president, with their names printed on their shirts. 
which they did. They were the president of the club, so they did this. No one else had this, but they did. And I'll tell you, I mean, to be honest, it, it almost seemed to me that they were wearing those shirts every single day at school. I know they didn't, but practically every memory I have of them in my mind, even to this day, has them wearing those shirts. They wore them all the time, constantly bragging about their position. So, um, when just put it this way, when the school year ended that year, I was very thankful because I didn't have to deal with that club anymore for a few months. But the following school year, we again started off and we were going to have elections. Now, Brian and his friend Dave, who are now seniors, they wanted to run the club again. But this time there was a huge protest from the other students. Nobody on this, in the else, no one else in the club wanted them. A very heated, and I mean heated, discussion interrupted between the two former officers and the rest of the club. As the sponsor, I tried to proctor the meeting using Robert's Rules of Orders, but I almost had to declare martial law. I thought, what a way to begin a new season in this club. But when the election was finally held, Brian and Dave were soundly defeated. Matter of fact, each getting only each other's vote. Um, they didn't get any other votes. And because of this, they were fit to be tied. They were angry. Uh, oh, my gosh. They started swearing and everything. <laughs> and they yelled to the group that, we, you know, you don't want us. We don't want anything to do with this club. And they walked out of my room. Ugh, I tracked them down and tried to reason with them. They both said that if that's the way the group felt about them, they were not coming back. Well, I decided to just let it drop I went back, rejoined the club, and we ended up having a pretty good year. Well, that's not the end of it. About two weeks later, I came into school one morning around 6.30, as I usually do, and I noticed some expensive science instruments were missing from my lab, things like electronic balances and stuff. I thought at first that some other teacher had borrowed it, um, but being that other labs have the same equipment, I didn't find it feasible, but I thought it was possible. I looked around, I had a little short departmental meeting and we, we found out, no, um, they weren't there. We checked with the other teachers in the school just in case they had used them, um, talked with custodians and stuff. Well, they're gone. And because of this, now the police were involved because this is expensive equipment. Um, before a week was over, the police found the guilty parties. They were identified. They were, as a matter of fact, they were caught red-handed. When the police went to the homes of um, the people, they found out, um, they found the equipment there. So they were caught red-handed. And you could probably guess who it was. It was our former president and vice president of our club, Brian and Dave. They stole the science equipment from my room and things from other rooms in the school, the science department. When I talked to Brian, and asked him why he did this, he told me that it was in retaliation for not getting the presidency of the club. He felt that the school and I had let him down by taking the leadership role away from him. Actually, neither the school nor I had anything to do with it because it was a student vote. He actually claimed to be the best leader the club had ever had or ever will have. Hmm. I told him that the only thing he and Dave succeeded in doing was getting put in jail. How do you react? How do you react when you get a new job or a promotion? What happens? Your actions can be a portrait of the type of person you are. 
For instance, I know of another person who strove to be the administrator of a corporation. He worked his way through the ranks from the low till he finally caught um, the eye of the CEO. His ruthless tactics were unknown to the, the CEO, but nevertheless, he got promoted over people who were far more gifted and talented than he was. The day he was promoted, he had, before the day was over, he ordered new business cards, he ordered new letterhead, new stationery, um, and even clothing with his title and stuff on it to prove that he was now the administrator. He, he had a new plaque put on his desk and ordered a new plaque to put on his door um, of his new office. Yeah, some people are like that. Maybe you know someone like that. Do you know people who've been put in charge of a group of individuals that didn't act humble about it, but instead began bragging about their new appointment? God doesn't want us to be like that. One sin God really detests is the sin of pride. You don't believe me? Do a Bible study on your own on that. Search the Bible for acts of sinful pride, and you will see that this was not only Satan's sin against God, but even the first sin of man and uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. It had to do with pride. They wanted to be like God. This was one factor, this, this one factor, pride, has destroyed so many organizations. People who have taken pride to a, to a new level and stuff have destroyed families. It has destroyed individuals. Pride is a very dangerous tool and one that Satan wields very, very accurately. So, how are we to handle promotions? If you get promoted, how are we supposed to do this? Well, I believe God gave us a great example in this boy named David. To set the scene here, King Saul had fallen to pride about being the king of Israel. He was disobeying God, and now God was getting ready to have another man take his place. Of all the people in Israel, of all the thousands and thousands of people, God chose the boy David. Now, look how David is introduced in the scripture. We're going to be looking here at um, chapter 16, we're going to be going to verse uh, 12 and 13. We're going to get the introduction here of how David is introduced. This, this is fascinating to me. So look how he's introduced. The scene opens, just to give you some background, the scene opens with the prophet Samuel being sent by God to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. God has told Samuel that he's finished with Saul. He's going to anoint a new king, have him anoint a new king who will be the new leader of the people. So through the Holy Spirit, Samuel comes to the home of Jesse. He examines the sons of Jesse, if you recall the story, one by one, as chapter 16 is unfolding, one by one, but none of those present are the one God tells him will be the new king. Samuel gets a little exasperated. Well, if these are all the sons, God didn't pick any of them. What's going on? Samuel then asks Jesse if these are all of his boys and finds out that the youngest, David, is not present. He's not there. He's out tending the sheep. And Samuel sends for him, saying we're not going to do anything until he gets here. Now, let's take a look. This is verses 12 and 13 of 1 Samuel 16. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, word-for-word translation. And he sent and brought him in. Now, this is David. Now, he was ruddy and had, a beautiful, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him 
in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now we can get another instance. I mean, you might be thinking, there's not a lot of information here. Oh, there is. And we'll get to that in just a second. But I want to give you a different uh, look at this, not from the scripture, because we have the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote in his Antiquities of the Jews, an account of the event we just mentioned. So this is taken from the Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, a contemporary of like um, the apostles and stuff. Um, and he was authorized to write for the Romans the history of the Jewish people. This is what he writes about this encounter. Now remember, this is a historical uh, a historian who's writing this. It's not God-inspired. It's not the Bible. We got what God says. Now this is what a human person just wrote about. Josephus writes, Now as soon as his father had sent for David, and he was come, he appeared to be of yellow complexion, of a sharp sight, and a comely person in other respects also. This is he said Samuel privately to himself, whom it pleases God to make our king. So he sat down to the feast and placed the youth under him, and Jesse also, and his other sons. After which he took the oil in the presence of David and anointed him and whispered him in the ear and acquainted him that God chose him to be their king and exhorted him to be righteous and obedient to his commands. For that by this means his kingdom would continue for a long time, and that his house should be of great splendor, celebrated in the world, that he should overthrow the Philistines, and that against what nation soever he should make war, he should be the conqueror and survive the fight. And that while he lived, he should enjoy a glorious name and leave such a name to his prosperity also. Now, that's what we read from Josephus. So we get a little bit more of an idea here. Now, Josephus talks about this divine appointment that the Bible talks about. I mean, this is quite a promotion, wouldn't you say? From living out with a smelly sheep, not even being considered by your father to be noteworthy enough to come in when Samuel comes and asks to see the brothers, your father leaves you out in the field. <laughs> I mean, in, and then you're brought in? And right in front of your brothers and your dad, you've been, uh, it's announced that you're chosen as the new king. Now, this just didn't come from any old man either. The person who walked into town was God's chosen messenger. So this was a decision came down, this decision came down from God himself. Now, I got to ask, how would you have acted in that situation? I mean, <laughs> you can't get much greater promotion at that time period Yet David, if you noticed, was David looking for the new job? No, he wasn't. It was sort of a secret. David wasn't even looking for the job. He seemed to be, as we will see as we continue to study this series, very content to be out with the sheep in the wilderness. Now, he was told he would be God's chosen leader of the entire nation. Wow. My friends, how do you react when you get the promotion to be a leader. How do you handle it? Let me ask you this. How did you handle your last job promotion? What did you do? How did you react? What did you say to your family? What did you say to your friends, your peers? 
Well, in 1 Samuel 16, we can read of many things that David did not do that often people who are who allow pride to set in often do. Let's examine for a moment what we don't read in um, Samuel 16 in these verses, what David didn't do, because it shouts a lot. So here's the question. We're going to ask a lot of questions here of what. Um, what, did G, or what did David do? Um, and then what he didn't do. For instance, first of all, I'm going to give you 10 things. The first one uh, that people will often do when they get a promotion, but David didn't. He didn't go shopping for a new crown at the jewelry store. You know, say he didn't run down to Saks um, or some other store, um, jewelry store, and order a new, can, uh, new crown to be made with jewels and stuff. No, he didn't do that. You know, another thing he didn't do, number two, he didn't call the printer down there in Bethlehem or up in Jebus, just six miles away, uh, to have new business cards made. He didn't do it right away. He didn't do that. You don't see that. Third thing he didn't do, he didn't call the local newspaper. He didn't go up to um, make an appointment for a journalist to come down and interview him on a TV station or for the newspapers to come and, and feature an interview with the new king. He didn't do that at all. Fourth thing he didn't do, he didn't have new stationery made with his logo and title on or new shirts and new clothing. Number five, he didn't have a new signboard with his title placed on his desk and on his door. Number six, <laughs> he didn't go looking for a new chariot. Um, being he was from a small town, Bethlehem, Jebus, big, bigger city, just six miles north, he didn't go there and order a new chariot to show others of his promotion and esteem. Number seven, he didn't demand to have the biggest bedroom in the house. There is no mention of any change taking place in the home. So he didn't ask, oh, I... I'm going to be the king. Give me the biggest bedroom. I should, Dad, you should move out and let me have the master bed. He didn't do anything like that. And obviously, as what we're going to see, he was not even thought of, as we've already talked about, he wasn't even thought of as being important enough to come to this meal with Samuel the prophet. His dad and his brothers didn't even consider him like that. Number eight, he didn't say to his family, you see no record of him saying that he's now too important to do the medial task of watching the sheep. Hey, um, younger brother here, he should do it. Or, you know, this brother should do it. I, I'm going to be the king. I shouldn't be out there doing that. Mm -mm. That's not him. Number nine, he didn't run to town and uh, go to the, the tailors and order a new robes made with his monogram on them. Number 10, he did not think of himself any higher or mightier than he was before. He didn't. So that's what we can see. And I mean, there's other traits that many people that I have noticed when they get promotion, they do these things. David, there's no mention of David doing anything like that. The next thing we see happening concerning David, some time has passed as we continue reading this chapter. Time passes when we next read about David. What was David doing after this period of time, after the prophet Samuel told him how God was giving his, him this new promotion? Well, um, we read that he went back to the smelly sheep out in the wilderness, just what he was doing before. Because if you take a look at the next time he's mentioned, that's verse 19 of chapter 16. Look what it reads. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, now get this, who is with the sheep. So where is David? He's back doing what he was doing before. It did not go to his head. 
He did not swell up with pride. I absolutely love this about David. He just went back to his own life. He didn't demand bigger offices or anything like it. He didn't do anything like that. He went back to his own life. What did he do? He let God move him where God wanted him to go. And then there's an important lesson for us. He just sat out there with the family sheep waiting. And I emphasize waiting for God to move. And God did move him. He named him one of King Saul's, named, he, he is named by one of King Saul's officers and officials to come and play the music for the king to soothe him. So he got some type of reputation, but it had nothing to do with this promotion. Now David is moved right into the official court of King Saul. Now, now, now this is very important. Notice that David did not instigate this move. Did you catch that? David did not instigate the move. This was directed from God. Oh, how different many people are that they strive so hard. They will um, become the slave of some higher official and try and catch their eye constantly because they want this promotion. That is not the way God does things. That's pride coming into the, to the issue and shows in your character. So David goes and plays for the king, and the king loves him. Notice David doesn't come in and say, hey, I'm supposed to replace you. No, he remains totally silent on this. He comes and, and does his job that he is hired for. Nothing more, nothing less. That's what he does. I mean, do you get the irony of this? King Saul loved this man, it says. He loved him. The guy who's going to be his replacement, Saul didn't know it at the time, but the guy who's going to be his replacement, Saul absolutely loved, just like one of his own sons. Even with that, this did not seem to go to David's head. Now he's accepted into the court. Oh my gosh, how many people, that would affect their character. That would make their head swell with pride. That would make them change the way that they act and, and want to be received from others. Not David. David would go back and forth to the fields. He'd come when he was summoned, and then he'd go back to the sheep. He still had his mind set on the family sheep. How do we know that? Look what you read in the next, uh, in, in a verse when you get down to chapter 17, verse 15. We get to the story about David and Goliath. When that story takes place in the next chapter, some time has passed. Look where David's at again. But it says in 1 Samuel 17, 15, But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Do you see how humble this guy is? All these things that he's being promoted to is not going to his head. I mean, let's, let's folks, let's, let's just pause here for a moment and examine this one verse more and look at it carefully. After David was anointed the new king of Israel, he goes back into the oblivion of where? The wilderness. He's not in the capital. He's not in, in any of the big cities. He's out in the wilderness, exactly where Samuel finds finds him. He goes back to the wilderness and the sheep. He did not rocket to action and demand all this stuff. He goes into seclusion. Do you see this? He doesn't stay in the court. He goes back into the wilderness when he gets a chance. I have no doubt in my mind by reading Psalms that David was composing before he became king. And so I have no doubt in my mind that he spent some quality time with God during this time out in his time out in the, the wilderness with these sheep. 
Now, there is a major, major lesson for all of us here who get promoted. It's often important to get along with God before you go out to do some, some significant work for him. For instance, we see this throughout Scripture. The Apostle Paul, after he was saved, he didn't go directly to the revival services in Antioch. What did he do? In Galatians 1, uh, chapter 1, 15 and 17, we read that, that he went into seclusion in Arabia. In Arabia. Moses, look at him. He spent 40 years where? Before he led the people of Israel on the Exodus, where was he? He spent 40 years in the wilderness of Midian before leading the Israelites out of Egypt. He goes into seclusion. Not only that, we read the great prophet Elijah did the same thing. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 2 through 6, we read that Elijah went into seclusion at Cherith at the beginning of his ministry. You starting to see a plan developing here for leadership? We can go on. How about Joseph, the son of Jacob? He was in seclusion, sort of not the most fun place. He was put in jail for many years before his rise to his calling in Pharaoh's court. You see, the point I'm trying to make is this. When you get promoted, go into seclusion with God. Now, he might do it to you, as he did with some people, but if not, make a point to go and hide in the shadows and spend time alone with God. Don't make all these big plans. Don't make all these announcements. Order parties to have a big celebration. No. You really want to be a good leader? Take the example we see here that God's giving us for all these major leaders. Get alone into seclusion with him. This is preparation for handling human pride. You get promoted. Promotion means you're going to be up in front of people. This, God is saying, go into seclusion. The opposite. You're doing the opposite thing, which is the, that's defeating the human pride. It's the opposite of what human pride tells us to do. Human pride tells us, go out there and make a point of ourselves. Let ourselves be out there. Let our, our name get out and stuff. God says, no, 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 no. I'll do that. You spend some time with me. And it's here that God protects us in this seclusion with him and gives us time for training. So sometimes you might find yourself, if you get a promotion or something like that, or before your promotion, before the promotion even exists, before you even know about it, sometimes God will put you in the desert. He'll put you in the wilderness. He'll put you in a, in a jail. He'll put you in something that you're going to spend some time with him. And that's where he's going to help train us and, and train all of us and, and protect us against the sin of human pride, which he hates. Did you see that David still didn't think anything more of himself after he got the promotion than he did before? That's how God wants us to react when we're promoted. To put it simply, David was a humble person, self-effacing. He was humble. That's how you handle a promotion. That's how God wants us to react when we get the job we've been hoping or maybe even praying for. Those wilderness experiences are not fun. Those seclusion moments are not always fun. Sometimes they're very frustrating to us. But God will teach us. He teaches us during these times. Human pride is the antithesis of humility. But humility is what Jesus portrayed to us. And that is what God desires of us. There's your lesson.
Let me close by telling you about another person that understood this. Um, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was a meek man. Uh, many people today have little knowledge of him, so let me tell you his story briefly here. He was born in Maine in 1828. He was guided by his Christian mother in the ways of God. He was raised as a French Protestant, and he was strongly, he's just strongly desired to be a minister or to be a missionary. He, he went through his early life, his teen years and, and early adult life, wanting so badly for God to use him as a missionary. But he never became a minister, never became a missionary. He enrolled in Bendowin College um, up in Maine, and then he enrolled in, after graduating there, in Bangor uh, Theological Seminary, where he got basically his master's degree. Now, immediately upon that, he was hired by Bowdoin College as a professor, and so now he's teaching. As he contemplated his future about being a minister, being a teacher, being a missionary, the Civil War broke out. Wanting to enlist, he was denied leave from the college to go to war. But feeling drawn to do so, he enlisted anyway. And he enlisted with the 20th Regiment of Maine Volunteers. Now, he has no military background, but others saw leadership in him. Matter of fact, so much did they see it, um, his officers and stuff that were above him. He was offered the rank, get this, of lieutenant colonel of a whole regiment of soldiers. They wanted him to be the leader of this regiment. So they said, we're going to make you a lieutenant colonel. You know what his response was? He declined it. He says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want that position. But it was placed upon him nonetheless. God's actions overcame this. Even though he wasn't thrilled with it, at first, God had it all set up. This was God's plan. Well, his men eventually loved and followed him. Even as they were training, they started to see something different in this in this Christian man. He saw action in 24 battles and quickly rose to the rank of general. He was known to act differently than other officers. Instead of eating better food and sleeping in houses with other high-ranking officers, Lawrence Chamberlain chose to eat the same food with his men and sleep in a small tent with them also, right in the group, right with his soldiers. Even when on the march, I found this fascinating, even when on the march, his infantry often saw him marching on foot with them instead of riding on a horse as any other colonel or general was apt to do. He marched along with them. It was the actions of Lawrence Chamberlain at the Battle of Little Round Top that made possible the Union victory at Gettysburg, paving the way for triumph over the South in the Civil War. Because of his actions there, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. He was also the man General Grant, later on, had the South officially surrendered their arms and colors to. What an honor that is. And he went on after the war to serve as governor of Maine for four terms. Now, this is a remarkable thing for someone who never even wanted to do these things. God just kept heaping this stuff upon him. Now, why was Lawrence Chamberlain so successful as a leader? Well, he was a humble man. But more importantly, he had, he had a place for God's guidance in his heart. He was not a proud man, but one who saw that leadership 
Now get this. Leadership is actually being a servant to the people below him. My friends, that's leadership. I'll never forget when I got hired at a school in Illinois that the principal, best principal I ever served under, um, this guy was absolutely brilliant, uh, Bill Freeman. And he told me right when I got hired, he says, I'm the principal, you'll be one of my teachers. Don't call me Mr. Freeman, unless there's students around, you call me Bill. My teachers call me Bill. And he says, my job is to serve you, to, be, to make you the best teacher you can possibly be. So you tell me how I can be in that position. What do I need to do to help you be the best teacher you can be? I'll never forget that moment. I doubt he remembers it today, but it really impacted me. This is a guy who knew leadership. That's leadership. Father God, we thank you for this time we have here and for David's example. Even in the few verses we looked at, how much we can see about what leadership should be like. We also know, Lord, from the scriptures how much you detest pride. You honor the meek, the humble. Lord, help us to be more like that. Help us to see we don't have to be self-promoting. If you want us in a position, you'll put us there. You can do it. And forgive us, Lord, when we act pridely, with pride trying to get things on ourselves without consulting you. And Lord, help us always to remember to get into seclusion with you so that you can speak to us through your word. And help us always, Lord, to be freely willing to talk to you in prayer. So take care of us, Lord, as we try and grow to be closer to us. We thank you in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I want to thank you so much for joining me on this first lesson of many that we're going to be doing on David. And there's nine, I believe, overall that we have, I have put together on this series that we'll be doing. And this was the first. And again, if this has helped you in any way, we'd love to hear from you. And you can contact us through evidenceforfaith.org um, and let us know. Uh, and also, we are a total, um, this, this entire ministry, Evidence for Faith, we are a non-for-profit we work on what the donations and, and people coming alongside and joining our, our ministry in helping support us and pray for us, and that's what we covet. So um, if you would like for us to come to your church, school, organization, college, whatever, please contact us at evidenceforfaith.org. There's a place there um, for doing that, and we thank you so much for joining us today. So until we meet again, take care, and may God bless. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to help us produce the next course, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And don't forget to use some of the other links in our description. You can find out more about Evidence for Faith and what we do as a ministry and even sign up to some of our programs. And if you've enjoyed today's course, don't forget to share it with a friend so they can benefit from it too. And with that, we hope to see you on the next course.